In this universe, we look at a lot of things like failure is not such a bad thing. If you're not failing, you maybe you're not trying hard enough. Welcome to Ending Pending. I'm your host, Andy. I'm a swamp thing, and I'm Evan. I'm a fallen angel, but am I really? I'm Ronnie. Ending Pending is a podcast where we discuss television shows that have only lasted for a single season. Today, we have a very special episode, though. We're talking to some cryptids and their keepers. Well, only, only, just only one of them, and keeper, them. and single keeper. <laughs> a lonely keeper. That's right. Yeah. I maintain my solitary vigil. Introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Alex Flanagan. I am one half of the Cryptid Keeper podcast. So if you've ever listened to that, then chances are you've heard these dulcet tones before. But uh, primarily, I'm just somebody who really enjoys talking about monster mythology. And I'm super excited to be here today to talk about these creepy boys and what they've got to bring to the table. So, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. What's that? Evan, is, is someone at our door? Oops. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. Let me let me answer that real quick. Yeah, answer the door. <gasps> oh, wow, guys, look at this. It's, wow. uh, it's Alex from Cryptid Key. Oh, it's ending pending. You're wow. taking their bit, babe. Don't say... Wow, that was good. wow, that was I'm some... Owen Wilson. I'm like, oh my God, it's Cryptid Owen Wilson. Keeper. Wow, how'd he get here? <laughs> this is incredible. Oh, oh, wow, you know Alex. Oh, great. Owen, it's great to see you. We are, we are intimately familiar. Yeah, we go way back. Good friends. That was some good Foley work, though, baby. Oh, I did my best. Yeah, I, like, knocked on the table like it was the fucking door. <laughs> good job. <laughs> I thought you were trying to kill a bug over there or something. I was a little confused. Porcano oh, no. was, it was It was some prop work. Mm-hmm. And by prop, Andy means our table. Let's talk about what we talk about on this show. That's... <laughs> oh, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Save us, Evan. What do we talk about on this show? Uh, as Andy mentioned, this is uh, a podcast where we talk about television shows that have only lasted a single season. In that case, uh, in this case, rather, we are talking about Constantine, the television show on NBC that was uh, cut short in its prime, maybe not its prime, depending on how you felt about it. Um, and that show's full of a lot of spooky things. Some things that are cryptids, some things that are not cryptids, many things that are unsettling and disturbing. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we should bring in an expert for a very special episode to talk about some of this, the spookiness on that show. A master of the macabre, if you will. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, Gonna put that on my resume. Love it. A, beast, a beastie pro. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, just to get this out of the way, I've never seen this show. Literally, my knowledge of the show comes from uh, the little bit of information I know about Constantine, like as a character and as a story. Um, and then the email that you guys sent me with <laughs> the breakdown of all the different monster critters that we're dealing with here. So I am so happy to just jump right in and pretend to offer my expertise on a thing that I am tangentially aware of. So, Yeah. Um, if we go off some rabbit trails, that's totally okay. Yeah. That yeah. is literally all I do, so I hope you're prepared. <laughs> um, in fact, let's do one right now. If you could have any cryptid as a pet, which one would you want? As a pet? 
Yeah, or like a friend or Yeah, roommate, well there are, there are <laughs> I'm sorry, I just like I just sort of realized the the shock and disgust that was in my voice when I said that. Um How dare. I, I, I'm quite shocking and disgusting. Me. It's okay. Oh, uh, no, it's fine. Uh there are very few cryptids that I would want to keep as a pet just because most of them have an air of sentience about them and part of that is just because we spend a lot of time on our show sort of you know, personifying all of the various monsters that we deal with. However, I think there are a few that would be very, very fun to have around and, and maybe make very lovely domestic companions. I think the jackalope would be a good one. It's hard mm. to go wrong with that. The jackalope would be an excellent little, little furry friend to have around. Um, uh, the tea kettler would make an excellent companion if you can get over the sound, but there are a lot of noisy dogs. And so the tea kettler is really not that big of a deal. Tea kettler would be a great one. Um, as far as friends, like all, any, all. All of them forever. <laughs> N- Nessie is my best friend, and I would I would love to have her as a pet slash roommate. Although uh, I firmly believe that the reason she hasn't been found is because she's a fae. Oh. And whenever they tome they or they they search the waters, she just goes back into the fae wilds. I do uh, like and that so take. Having having a fae in my house might be a bit of an issue. Also, yeah. uh, she needs to be moist. <laughs> we got we got a river right outside. Just like a koi pond with a Loch Ness monster in it. I love it. Yeah, yeah only one of her flippers fits in it. Right, she's I, trying, though. I love Nessie very much. <laughs> she's beautiful. I I... I'm glad that she's got fans out here. <laughs> Ronnie, Evan, any 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 picks? Oh, I got I got some picks. Uh, I'm a big, big personal fan of the Snallygaster. I oh, play yeah. the Snallygaster. I play the Snallygaster at the LARP we... Uh, our storytellers for, and I also play the scientist who's obsessed with the Snallygaster. Well, that's and fine. This is, yeah, this is the running joke. He will never encounter it because it is, in fact, me, the same NPC. Yeah, is Evan it, uh, being the Charles Darwin of cryptids and being the actual cryptid is quite hilarious. Now, uh, is there, like, a plot twist that you have planned? And, like, cut this from the episode if you have to, but is there a plot twist planned where it's, like, a Jekyll and Hyde sort of situation where not only are you both characters, but both characters are the same character? <laughs> Fuck me. Do you want to storytell on our LARP? That's brilliant. <laughs> no, I did not have that planned. Um I'm going to have to put that in my pocket, maybe that's, to use. That's free property. A, Take it. Yeah. In a, a different application, maybe. But From yeah, my it is, IP to yours. Mm, 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 give me them ideas. Uh, yeah, that wasn't my specific plan. My specific plan was just to have it be increasingly absurd that, uh, you know, why, why are Batman and Bruce Wayne never in the same place? <laughs> no one knows. Um, Nobody can tell. Yeah. See, but that's like the heart of good storytelling, I think, is to take something and just like riff it to the point where, and this is something I specifically do a lot in like tabletop, like I do this as a DM, where you'll take an idea that your characters throw out that's just like completely nonsensical and you just like riff it to the point of absurdity. And then at the last moment, you like bring in some plot twist that makes it genuinely like bittersweet and devastating and lovely. So that's that's the way to do it, I think. Hell yeah. I saw a Twitter post that was like, the DM says, so you come upon a warehouse, and then the player says, is that like a werewolf, but it's a house? (laughs) And then the DM said, like, frantically scratching down notes, it is now. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. That's like 80% of our Monster of the Week campaign. Ronnie, you got a cryptid that you want? I do. I'm uh, I'm digging into some pretty recent uh, cryptid keeper uh, storylines to pull out the Yule Cat. Ooh, I've very much choice. enjoyed hearing about that good, good Christmas cat. The or Yule like cat a good is so holiday fun. cat. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's I'm not really a cat person per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of like a very sentient, very like autonomous cat that's just kind of like a bit of an asshole <laughs> around the holidays is just like I could get down with that. I have I some news be, for you then, cool friend. It sounds <gasps> like you like all cats. Because oh, that's all cats. Ronnie yeah. doesn't this this is Ronnie a new discovery. Own a cat. So I don't own a cat. No. Yeah, that sounds like you need one. You pretty much just described all cats. But I want a cat that's like that I can be an asshole with, not a cat that's like frequently an asshole to me. <laughs> I um I my cat is a little bit of both. I have a cat who is now living at my mom's house, but my cat's name is Cat. I'm great at names. And he uh is kind of a jerk, but we have a very sort of antagonistic relationship. Like there's, there's one particular story that I find hilarious, which is, um, after I had gone away to college, when I came back, um, he would spend like weekends where I was at home, like 80% of the weekend, he would spend purposefully ignoring me. And by that, I mean, he would walk into rooms that I was in and come sit down in front of me and then just look in a different direction. Like he would walk, (laughs) he would follow me into the room, sit down in front of me and then like, Hmm, sorry, what is there? A human in this room, maybe that can't be bothered to notice me. I certainly don't know. Um, and then we'd in, like, you know, inevitably decide six hours before I had to leave again that we were best friends. And then, you know, it would be heartbreaking when I had to walk out the door again. But yeah. <sighs> cats. We, we only have good cats, and all of them love us very much. Oh, yep. nice. They're all great. Speaking of cats, though, I'm also a big fan of the the I believe it's the tatzel worm, the, oh, the yes. cat snake. The weasel snake yes, boy. The tassel of him. Yeah. He's a very one. good friend. I had never heard of that until uh, I listened to you guys' episode on it. But I realized Ooh, what is that noise? Uh I am so sorry. I think that was probably something on my phone coming through. Let me turn that on airplane mode. Oh dear. We'll see if that helps. Sorry, that's happened <laughs> one or two times before when I have my phone too close to my microphone. Uh, my bad. That anyway, the totsel worm. The totsel worm. <laughs> the tots der der totsel. The totsel worm. Yes. Um, yeah. I had never heard of it until your podcast about it, mm-hmm. but uh, then I realized I had seen illustrations of it before, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, That's what that is. We've gotten some really cool fan art of the totsel worm too since we did that episode. It's the one that people have really, really enjoyed drawing. <laughs> so I'm very thankful for that. It's really fun to look at. A wiggly boy. Yeah, squirmy lad. Uh, uh, so we should probably talk about some critters that exist in this show. Yeah, probably. you guys have a podcast, probably. right? We Sorry. do. Yeah, we also have. We're not just here to, to fanboy about your podcast, which is excellent, by the way, listeners. You should all Thanks. listen to Cryptid Keeper. It is very good. Uh, yeah, very I would. Good. I would be listening to it even if it were not also on the network that we are on because it is an excellent podcast. Uh, well, thank you. That's very kind. But it is. So hey. You know, you get to you get to do work by listening to my work. So that's exciting. Uh, One thing in particular that uh, I know you guys have covered already that I got very excited when it turned up in Constantine is Mm -hmm. there's a Kuchisake Ona in Constantine. Yeah, I saw it. Although it's. Yeah, I saw that in your email and I was like really delighted. I wasn't expecting that. That's very, very cool. Yeah. So there's is a slight variation in that it's a. It's not identified as Kuchisake Ona, mm-hmm. but it's clearly inspired by that story. Uh, so the backstory to that 
ghost is that uh, the the Ona was a model who had like a jealous colleague mm-hmm. who had like a mental break and slashed her face up, and she like died of blood loss or, or no, shock. No, she committed or suicide after. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay. See, I've already forgotten what this show's about. <laughs> if there had been another season, you probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Come on now. Fucking NBC. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, this was a thing that you guys had talked about and were, as I recall, fairly interested in. You did some other Japanese spirits as well. Yeah, um, and it's a a shame that Addison wasn't able to join us tonight because she's typically the one who handles a lot of the Japanese lore uh, that's more in her wheelhouse than mine. But the Kuchisaka Ona is a really, really fascinating cryptid. And it's one of those where, like with so many other pieces of mythology there tend to be stories from all around the world that sort of fall under this umbrella terminology. And it's always hard to tell, like, did this one specific story inspire these interpretations of it in other places? Or did all of these conglomerates show up in different areas and they just happen to be reflections of some innate thing that human beings are fascinated by and this is just the most popular one? Or is there really a monster out there that shows up in different areas around the world and this is just the most most codified way of looking at it? Hard to say, but the Kuchisaka Ona is really, really fascinating. And there are um, several other different yokai that sort of fall into similar areas in terms of like typically classically beautiful women with tragic backstories and usually gendered violence that um, befalls them in some way. And then they become these vengeful spirits that, you know, carry out their mission upon unsuspecting passerby. So that's like a really common trope in folklore. And specifically in Japanese folklore, it comes up a lot, but. It was really cool to see it in the breakdown that you guys sent for this show because it seemed like there were a lot that were pretty um, pretty unique to like the lore of the show itself and the way they were building it up in that world and some that were kind of just vague or very, very circumstantial. So to have one that's a pretty classic piece of monster iconography was really neat. So in the show, Chaz is Constantine's buddy. Mm-hmm. He's like right-hand man. And he gets killed by the... I'm not going to try and say it. I'm going to sound <laughs> racist if I try and say it. Uh, Kucha Sake Ono? Uh-huh. There we yeah. go. Best, best, Kucha best, Sake best, Ono. best, best shot. Yeah. And uh, he gets killed by it a few times and Chaz comes back because he's Chaz and he's magic. Um, and in order to like defeat it, he asks it more questions mm-hmm. and like stalls it. Is that, is that a viable, uh, Safety precaution? That's really kind of an interesting twist on the way that the Kuchisaka Ona works, because in the Kuchisaka Ona lore, it's actually she who asks you questions, and they're like kind of this catch-22. One of the questions that she asks you, if I'm recalling correctly, is that she'll basically come up to you and ask you if you think that she's beautiful, and um, there's really no good way to get around that. You either say, like, yeah, you're gorgeous, and then she kills you, or you say no, and then she kills you, so there's there's really no avoiding it, but uh, it's fascinating to think that, like, turning that around and asking her questions would would be a good way to go about it. That tends to be a pretty good strategy for a lot of monsters, actually, is, like, riddle competitions or stalling them out in conversation or questions. Uh, it, it's not like a sure bet with everything. Like if you run into a werewolf, I don't recommend just trying to reason with it. That's really not going to get you very far. But for creatures like this, ones that typically are on some sort of very specific mission from the other side or 
you know, operating between worlds like fey creatures. Uh, That's a pretty good strategy in general. It's a good one to have in your back pocket. It's really cool because this is one character in this show or, or one antagonist cryptid type character where it's very clearly not from a Western lore mm-hmm. where everything else, there's a couple of exceptions, but most of everything else very clearly is. And even the other, you know, ghost types in this episode are very much, you know, from a, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark kind of mm-hmm. milieu. It was, you know, interesting to see that someone clearly like, knew of this lore and and chose to enter it to add a little bit of diversity to the show, which I appreciate. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's always really cool when you can add elements into that thing. And I know it's always kind of intimidating to be like, well, you know, if this isn't my story to tell, how do I do it right? And how do I pay homage to that? And that is something that we have to deal with a lot when we're talking about what creatures we're going to pick, you know, is like, there's such a wide range of creatures out there to talk about and some really fascinating mythology. And it's always this struggle of, and maybe struggle isn't the right word. I don't want to paint it like we're the ones suffering here (laughs) because we're (laughs) definitely not. But just to say like, how can we respectfully include this and discuss this and riff on this? Because we're a comedy podcast without making light of the fact that, you know, these are stories that traditionally don't get nearly the same level of respectful treatment that a lot of Western stories do. And because there isn't just, there's just not as much of it in the, you know, prevalent lore, it's harder to make fun of it because there are fewer examples of it. So if every example of it is making fun of it, like that's obviously not great, right? So to have it in a show, but then like not call it by that specific name is definitely one way of tackling that. Mm-hmm. So people who are in the know are going to say like, oh, sure, that's a Kuchisaka Ona. I, I know what that is. Um, and people who don't aren't going to like mm-hmm. make all sorts of ill-informed assumptions about Japanese lore based on that. So I don't know. I don't really have any strong opinions on whether or not that's the right way to handle it, but I do think it's fascinating when people include something that is so specific uh, that like it clearly is this thing. They're just not calling it that thing. And I'm always kind of curious what the thought process is there, like why they decide to do it that way. Bisexuality. Yeah. Right. Like John's bisexuality. Um, Yeah. 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 Do they address that like overtly? No. No. Uh, never no they straight yeah we were we were big mad about it the whole time yeah you should be he's definitely very sexual he's quite sexual he's a very horny wizard plenty horny but he doesn't uh he doesn't uh get down with any dudes whole show dumb Uh, dumb any ghosts Uh, (laughs) no no No. then what's the point why not even they're not even gonna make him boo sexual (laughs) oh shit (laughs) One of the other uh, cryptids that comes up pretty early that this one I feel like I know is at least fits the bill of <laughs> cryptid is um, these mining spirits. These I want to say Koblenau. I think it's Koblenau. Koblenau, uh, uh, the, the knockers they call them. Um, I, I've heard of these before just through uh, the osmosis of culture. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't until this uh, until this I hadn't really known much about them. Yeah, I don't know a ton about those, and it's kind of like antithetical, right? You would think that I would be looking more into like cryptid mythology as we go on with this podcast, but there are actually some cases where if I don't already know about a thing, I will refrain from looking it up because we never know which one of us is going to pick something, and it's kind of part of the conceit of our show that. 
we bring something to the table that the other person's unfamiliar with. So there have been some things throughout, you know, the past two years that we've been doing this where I'll see something and I'll be like, oh, I'm not going to read any more about that because if Addison brings it to the table next week, I don't really want to know what I'm talking about. But um, when it comes to like mining creatures, those tend to be more in my wheelhouse. There are like things that we've just learned to understand over the over the years, (laughs) like, oh, that's probably going to be an Addison one or that's probably going to be an Alex one. Um, So this is probably one that would be mine. The Cuddly Now, from what I do know, is Welsh and it's kind of like a gnomish creature. Is that does that track with how it's depicted in the show? Yeah, um, they're more like spirits in the show than they mm-hmm. are gnomes. Okay. Uh, but it's clearly based on this mythology where they're little underground goblins or something like that. And it's sort of uh, remixed a little bit to fit the conceit of the show better because it's a show about like exorcism. Right, stuff totally. Like that. Um, but. I had not heard of this this little critter uh, before before having seen Constantine, so I had to look them up to know that they were in fact mm-hmm. technically a cryptid and not a spirit. Yeah, how are they depicted in the show? Are they generally benevolent or are they malicious or um, they're benevolent, but they're currently murdering people because uh, so not that benevolent. <laughs> the they, miners well, he, are like being abused. He, yeah. Uh, uh, John does make a point uh, of remarking on how it 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 can't possibly be the Cobbly now because they're they're good spirits and they warn about cavens and mm-hmm. they protect miners and stuff like that, but they're killing people. Uh, and then he comes to the realization that they're only killing the people in charge, like the foremen and the oh, investors. Yeah. And so their purpose in life has been changed because what is really harming the miners is like corporate greed, essentially. Yeah. Oh, that's so So. cool. Now I'm going to have to go watch this episode. This is Uh, something that's... There's there's something (laughs) bad at the end. There's a bad twist twist at the end. Bad Bad racist twist at the end. Oh, jeez, really? I know. Yeah, they slide a racism in. It was a good idea. It was such a good premise for the episode, and then they ruined it right in the last three minutes or so. Well, then never mind. I'm not going to watch it. There are better things I can watch (laughs) about about miners' rights. Um, Yeah, so I am not Welsh, but I am West Virginian, and West Virginia is really, really like the history of West Virginia is very much steeped in, in union rights and labor organization. And specifically as it has to do with coal mines, actually there's a really, really fascinating labor history in West Virginia, even like in current day, I don't know how much you guys followed about the teacher strikes last year that were originating in West Virginia and really became sort of a a nationwide phenomenon. It was really fascinating, but um, that's something that shows up a lot in Appalachian folklore is this idea of, you know, the, the bad guy's capitalism, (laughs) like, because that's historically been true where you'll have these populations of people in underserved areas who are being exploited and taken advantage of by these company structures that not only exploit them, but trap them in a cycle where they have no choice, but to continue being exploited for their own survival. Um, And so it's not uncommon that you would have spirits or forces at work or just like unnatural circumstances, whether that's like spirits of the mountains themselves or fey folk or like granny witches who are exacting their revenge, uh, stuff like that, basically to just sort of turn the tables and invert that power dynamic. So that part of it's really cool. Um, I don't know what the racist twist is and I really don't want to get into it, (laughs) but that part of the lore is very fascinating and definitely very true to form for the 
sort of canon that it comes from. I have a new hashtag aesthetic and it is anti-capitalist goblins. Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. And you should definitely bring that energy into 2019. <laughs> yeah. Bring, bring anti-capitalist goblins into 2019. It's like the, you know, D&D is cool again now. I mean, it has been for several years, mm -hmm. but there's, there's much, much talk on the interwebs about, you know, like modern classes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the new, that's the new trends. Goblins, uh. Anti-capitalist goblins. You, I love it. Yeah. Goblins organizing for unions and eating the rich. <laughs> Speaking oh, of man. eating. Probably my favorite episode, and I think all of our favorite episodes of Constantine was episode four, where there was a hunger demon. Ooh. And it is just really, really unsettling when this demon possesses you and you just, like, start scarfing down all this food and you're mm -hmm. in, like, uh, a haze to get more food and, like, your body's eating itself. And it reminded me of hunger grass. Yeah, the Fargartuk. That's a really fascinating phenomenon, too. Uh, so if you are unaware of this, there's an entire Cryptid Keeper episode on it, and you can listen to me talk for an hour about this, or you can and just it's, listen it's to me say this now. It's fucking scary. Yeah, the Ferragartic is very really, really wild. It's a, it's a, it's an Irish phenomenon, um, and it's it, we do consider it a cryptid because it's a thing that ha does have anecdotal evidence of existing in certain areas, and does have a really fascinating historical connection to uh, the famine, the Great Famine in Ireland. And hungry grass, basically, is these patches of grass or these places, these areas, or these um, phenomena, these circumstances where basically you walk through a field or this specific patch of grass and you become inescapably hungry. Like, it, you cannot be satiated. And it's kind of a terrifying thought. Like, it's really, really simple on the surface, but... Just the idea of that sensation is actually really viscerally horrifying to me. And it's something that's, you know, I find that simple concepts like that when exploited to such an absurd extent kind of are the foundational element of really effective horror and really effective monster stories. I think that most monsters are really just elements of humanity that we're afraid of ratcheted up to 11 how, how, how do you, how do you beat that? Like when it's an element of nature that just like mm -hmm. walking by it, you can't, you can't fight grass. I mean, I mean, maybe yeah. you, that word, you really can't. I don't know how they handle it in the show. Um, the Farragartic in terms of mythology as in the way that it is extant in our world outside of the wonderful world of Constantine in the one season that it got, which probably serves its racist writers, right? If I'm reading this correctly. Uh, <laughs> basically is situational. So part of what you have to do to survive this is listen to your elders, you know, listen to the people who are telling you about this story. Don't forget your past and the history of your people and the land that you come from. That's a big part of it. And that really tends to be a prevalent, uh, moral, I guess it's a, it's a big part of the fables that are what make up monster lore, you know, is this idea that, respecting the stories themselves is part of what will keep you safe. 
And so especially with the hungry grass, part of it is this idea of being cognizant of where the horrible things that happened to the people that you came from happened and respecting those places in both a literal sense and also in the reverential sense of like being aware of the history of your people and where that comes from and honoring that. Uh, And also literally listening to like, you know, the wise old bog woman who tells you don't walk through that field after twilight, like just, you know, don't do it. Uh, But also carry snacks in your pockets, which I think is great life advice to have in general. And uh, be mindful of traveling in unfamiliar places alone. You always want to have somebody with you, which, again, is great advice in general. And other than that, it's really just a matter of, you know, being cognizant of your surroundings and respecting the creepy patches of the world where things stronger and older and more interesting than you have been around for a long, long, long time. <laughs> it, it cracks me up that you like bring up respecting your elders because even though it's a hunger demon and not hunger grass, it only got released because someone did something dumb. Well, there you go. To an elder. Mm-hmm. So yeah. perfect, well, perfect an older, here. more experienced, more knowledgeable <laughs> wizard who was part of the culture that it came from trapped it and a dumb young white dude released it. So, Ain't that just the way? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You got one, babe? Uh, Yeah, I know you guys have uh, addressed angels as they are seen through the cryptid lens. Yes, we have. And, yeah, and as you might imagine, Constantine is very much through uh, a Judeo-Christian lens. That's that's their creepy angle, as are a lot of things. A lot of things uh, sort of play into that. Mm Mm-hmm. Western mindset, where that's what that's what people who were raised Catholic, especially, hey, hey. Uh, find really terrifying is like possession and the devil. Yeah, and like I don't watch Supernatural, versus. but apparently the past like twelve seasons of Supernatural have just straight up been Bible fan fiction. So that's yeah, yeah, something else. So um, there are a lot of angels in this show, and there's a lot of sort of odd, if you ask me, in specific mm-hmm. mythology that this show has invented for angels. Maybe, Andy, since you've read the comics, you can speak to if that strange angel logic exists in the comics. Fucking but, nope. No. Okay, so. <laughs> also, as someone who has studied, like, angelology, not not really found there either. Yeah, Andy used to be a pastor. Uh, oh, all right. Yes, I think I did know that. kicked out for being gay. Yeah, yeah. What up, what up? (laughs) Now I'm going to hell. So, um, angels have, like, a ton of weird limitations in this show. Mm -hmm. Like, apparently, if you take an angel feather, the angel's trapped on Earth. Apparently, if you stick an angel in a human body, it can't do angel magic. Um, And I was just, like, wondering... does anybody know where that comes from? Did they make all of this up? Is there anything informing this culturally? Yeah, it because... kind of just sounds like they nerfed angels. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really all I'm getting here. Um, I, I don't know of any mythological precedent for any of those things. Um, I, and I'm not an expert. I, I did do our angels episode. So I did a lot of research on the lore surrounding them from, you know, a monstrous sort of, element um not just limited to judeo-christianity but specifically and i'm not really sure where that would be coming from other than i think they really just felt like they had to reinvent the 
burning wheel full of eyes on this one. It's a shame they did not put a burning wheel full of eyes in this show. That would have been so much... Here's the thing about angels. Everybody keeps feeling like they have to redo angels to make them spooky and interesting when, like, literally canon angels are way cooler than fanon angels. Like, canon angels... They're also non-binary. Yeah! Canon angels are dope. You could just make a show that's all angels doing angel shit, and it would be the coolest thing anyone had ever seen. I, I like the one it. with the extra heads. Yeah. yeah. It's got the dope faces. It's mm-hmm. got four heads. Yeah. I learned an interesting thing from Apocra Pals and that's that, uh, Apocra Pals is also a great podcast where, uh, Chris Sims and Benito Serino read through the Bible and just talk about it. Um, it's not a, uh, religiously slanted podcast. They're just very interested in the subject matter. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating uh, book. It is. It's very weird. And yeah, if you're uh, into the historical like precedent and effect of the Bible, Apocrypals is very good and still very funny. Yeah, and Benito is the one who knows about the Bible, and he explained that uh, when when the text talks about feet, it's referring to genitals. So there's uh, a sex. Uh, 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 what are they called? A chorus? What? It, what's, there's a group of angels. Yeah, a group of angels. There's a specific mm-hmm. word for groups. Of, but there's a specific group of angels, the ones that have six wings. And when it says that one set of wings is covering their feet, it's actually it's actually covering their genitals. Interesting. I did like, not that's, know that. That was apparently a euphemism in Hebrew, like for their junk. Jesus which, washing all the disciples' feet now is way more interesting. <laughs> I don't think it, wild, I don't, isn't it? I don't think it always meant genitals, I, I like know. from context, but... Yeah, that's the thing, <laughs> is that you have to be really careful with people will say like, oh, well, this actually meant this. It, it is very contextual. It has a lot to do with the fact that um, Hebrew does not translate neatly into English. It just doesn't. There's a lot of nuance in context that gets missed, and it's a nuance in context that people weren't particularly interested in preserving when they translated it into English. Like, so you end up with a lot of words that have, like, a really kind of beautiful and nuanced and poetic meaning, and then we're just like, we only have one word for love, so I don't really care what specifically you meant over here. It's just all going to be the same word over here, so. As someone who's studied Hebrew, it's a brutal language to learn and I have a lot of respect mm-hmm. for my Jewish friends who like did it when they were like 11 yeah uh, for their bar mitzvah and bat mitzvahs and stuff because it's it's tough anyway point is stop making angels pretty <laughs> ladies with wings stop yeah, it it's on. boring that's been done it, it, the angels in the show well there's uh there's Manny who turns out to be an evil angel but also the pretty lady with wings, I guess, turns out to be an evil angel, too. It's just so boring. I'm so done. Give me some wheels with eyes. Give me some four-headed angels. Yeah, we some... have the technology. We do. <laughs> we have incre- We can make a dog that's human-sized in uh, the frickin' Inhumans. Give us weird angels. We can, make, we can make Alita battle angel. We can make any kind of <laughs> angel that we want. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Speaking of like angel adjacent things, uh, have you guys done an episode on like Lilith or anything like that? Not specifically, no. Um, I, I did. I have mentioned the Lilith on our podcast before because I I find her to be deeply fascinating and, and beautiful as a as a figure. Um, but we haven't specifically done an episode on Lilith. Now, actually, interestingly, one of my favorite pieces of art in the world 
is this gorgeous sculpture of Lilith that is at the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore. Have any of you ever been? No, no but it's but nearby. Yeah, should. we should. Yeah, you should go to the American Visionary Art Museum. It's one of my favorite places in the entire world. And basically just a real quick diversion. Um, visionary art is classified as art made by people who were not trained as artists, but who got into art through some life experience, basically. So it's all, every piece of art in this museum is art made by people who were not artists, but who responded artistically to some event in or circumstance in their lives. So you end up with a lot of folk art. You end up with a lot of art from people who were um, institutionalized either in prisons or asylums who then like created using whatever they had on hand. You end up with a lot of art from people who were just sort of like probably could have been trained artists, but were stricken from the historical record because they didn't fall into the demographic of people who were allowed to access artistic training. And then sometimes it's like people who had just like bizarre circumstances occur in their life and then reacted to them in like really unconventionally artistic ways. Like there was this exhibit there one time, which was these really fascinating abstract pieces that looked like CAT scans because the person who was doing them was like originally a radiologist or something who had been diagnosed with um, a brain tumor and then like had basically parsed out her feelings on this by creating these pieces of art that looked like the scans that she was getting when she like found out that news or there was like this beautiful exhibit there one time that was all these huge embroidered pillowcases and they were just like landscapes that were embroidered by this Polish woman who was um, uh, like a Holocaust survivor, but they were just scenes that she had embroidered from her childhood. It was like the only way she had of recalling the things that were going on or like the way that her life was before all this happened. So anyway, it's like an often melancholy, but really kind of bittersweet and beautiful museum. But there is a sculpture of Lilith there that is just like one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. It's so piercing and like strange and really, really captivating. She like- I don't think- Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Uh, I was just going to say, I don't think Lilith technically counts as a cryptid, but... um, I think if angels count Lilith, because, like, uh, you can't disprove her. I mean... (laughs) true. (laughs) You and your fucking science. Oh, evolution. You can't disprove Lilith. What good is your Uh. science if it can't find me my beautiful demon wife? (laughs) So, Lilith's sister appears on the show, and they only give, like, a throwaway line to, like, oh, Adam's first wife, and, like, she's evil. And I was I was wow. very disappointed to hear that from Constantine because I feel like him of all people, like especially comic book Constantine, would mm-hmm. be like mad respect. Like, yeah, that's Lilith. a very like, reductionist yeah, you do, you, viewpoint. Not yeah. bowing down to like anyone. Like that's that's Johnny Connie, if, if that's anyone. <laughs> um, oh no. I started that and now it'll never go away. It'll never go away. Yeah, it's the best we're gonna thing be ever. calling him Johnny Connie forever. Yeah, it sounds like um, these people maybe don't know what show they were writing. Do you want to hit us with like a little bit of Lilith lore? Uh, if you're saving that for Cryptid Keeper and don't want to No, it's, deep, totally it's totally fine. Valid. So I am not a Lilith expert by any means. Um, and I am not like the foremost authority of people to speak on Lilith. You would probably, there are probably a lot of people out there who are like foremost feminist scholars in Jewish literature that are like the people to talk to about Lilith. I'm just a fan. But Lilith in the sort of general mythology of the Judeo-Christian lore was Adam's first wife. And basically she was 
created first and rather than being made from Adam, she was made equivalent to Adam and as a result, like refused to show deference. So she did not submit to Adam. And um, there are different readings of that text. It can either be read as like she was not sexually submissive or she was not like submissive in the distribution of labor in their relationship or like the authority of their like biblical household. Um, but what, however your take is or whatever text you're choosing to support your reading with, that is basically the premise is that she was not a submissive wife and she was not a, a deferential partner. She wanted to be like an equal partner in their relationship. And as such, she was cast out and basically is regarded as like a demon in all effective lore. She was stricken from the record and not spoken of. And Eve was given the, the you know, the title and the honor of being the the sort of mother and first wife of humanity. And Lilith was basically banned and blackballed from the the biblical record for that reason. But it's really fascinating. There's a lot of people in modern day who have sort of reclaimed Lilith as not only a feminist icon, which like she totally is, like you get it, girl, but also as a, just a symbology of, you know, the kinds of people who have been left behind and forgotten by religion over the ages and the people who have not been allowed to have their stories told because it hasn't fit the narrative of what's been, you know, established and ascribed for them. So she's a really fascinating character. There's a lot of writing that has been done, not like in the initial writing about her, but people who have since reflected on or drawn from that imagery and used her as a, as a metaphor for a lot of really, really fascinating things. So she's a cool character to look into and talk about. What's, what's really interesting to me is that in one of the oldest texts that I managed to read about her is mm-hmm. that she she's just taken to another place outside the garden to live mm-hmm. and that's it. Like God doesn't like go out of his way to punish her. He's just like, Oh, you don't want to submit to Adam. That's fine. Here's your, your own place. And that it was later writing, especially like middle ages writing mm-hmm. that really demonized her and like went out of their way to be like, no Lilith's this dark and demonic mm-hmm. creature. She didn't submit to her husband. And it's like, Oh shit. Ladies. Yeah. Like that's where all that, the like, the heaps and heaps sure. of, uh, like, extra sexism. Because, of course, it's already sexist to, like... Well, yeah. Just assume she's going to submit. That's fascinating. But, and that would actually make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it, I'm... Uh, it doesn't need to make sense to me. If that's what's true, it's what's yeah. true. But I'm just saying that I, I didn't know that. I'm also not an that. expert. Yeah, I didn't know that. But that, to me, tracks with what I know of history and the historical record and the way that these things were often shaped over time. A lot of what we know about... Christianity and Judeo-Christianity and and the lore is that it evolves is what was basically decided by people during that time period, because really what we have of the Bible now are not original texts, and we will probably never have original texts. We only have translations that survived from very specific viewpoints, and translation is an inherently subjective science. It's really comes down to people deciding what certain words mean and what certain words mean to them. I mean, if you tell any group of people like a collection of six random words, you'll get people who come back with really positive responses and people who come back with really negative responses and people who are totally ambivalent, people who get sort of generally the same meaning. But once you filter that through Google Translate six times, like, you know, everybody's done it. You've like put things through and then clicked and clicked back and clicked back, you know, and you'll end up with a meaning that you can sort of discern what originally was meant, but the 
the implications of it have totally changed. And so it's really hard to say how any of the original authors of the Bible actually felt about a lot of the material in it. All we really have are the ways that humanity has sort of assumed those things were meant to be interpreted years and years and years after the fact. There was also just a lot of outright Bible fan fiction being. Oh, hell yeah. Like (laughs) not even in a lot of cases, not even like intended to be like deceitful or Mm -hmm. uh, like taken as, you know, original works or, or an original part of the Bible or whatever. They were just real into the Bible and would just write fan fiction of the Bible. This is I'm, my I'm Bible like, OC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joseph yeah, Smith? Ooh, 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 this is a call out podcast. My, my Bible OC. <laughs> Yikes. No, I love our Mormon friends. <laughs> Except for the ones that hate the gays. Those yeah. Ones yeah. Those are no bueno. Mm-hmm. No, not great. Oh, um, boy. Um, do you, do you one, want to bring up another cryptid, someone? Yeah, I'll do a quick one here. Um, one of the first, the first cryptid we see, not even really cryptid, but it's a uh, a demon whose whole thing is it travels through electricity, uh, can affect electricity, can, you know, bounce around between lights and stuff like that, and can only be defeated once the entire grid of... Chicago, I think the city that they're in. Yeah, sure. Chicago. Yeah, shut say Chicago. This, uh, of, of course, Harry it's Dresden. a demon. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course, it's a demon. So it's not necessarily along with the the cryptid lore. But this struck me as a uh, captain of my fifth grade reading Olympics team, as a lot <laughs> like the uh, the book that I read, The Boggart, um, which I know is is you know been. The, the word boggart has been used by Harry Potter and, and you know, it, it has been even even the book, the boggart is a bit of a bastardization mm-hmm. of that uh, of that lore. Um, but I was wondering if if there is something electric based about modern boggarts or if there's another kind of cryptid that uses that mode of transportation and things Ooh, like that. That's real, a real quick, yeah. too. It reminded me of the electrical like storm, the storm cryptids. You, you did an episode on like atmospheric, atmospheric yeah, beasts. atmospheric yeah. beasts because mm-hmm. it like it uses lightning storms a bunch. I mm-hmm. I I love yeah. that episode. Can I just say oh, that thanks. was something I had never considered as a thing that existed, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah. there's big things up there. Atmospheric big things just existing. <laughs> atmospheric beasts are wild, and then we also recently did Thunderbirds. Um, so those were both really fascinating. Bogarts is a really cool take. I. You are like finding out my weak spots and and prying at them um, on in real time. I really don't know a lot about Bogarts in the historical sense. Unfortunately, I know most of what I know about Bogarts through Harry Potter, which pains me to say because <laughs> I am not shy in any way, shape, or form on my podcast about my feelings about J.K. Rowling's lore um, or lack thereof. Just saying. Oh man, J.K.R. Just yeah. saying. Anyway, don't be shocked if you are coming from this and you're like, I'm going to go listen to the Cryptid Keeper. That's going to be a good time. And then I call out anyone who's ever touched a Harry Potter book, myself included, for even briefly falling for her chicanery. Um, Anyway. Look, I think we all loved Harry Potter in our childhoods. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But a lot of us know better now. Harry Potter is something that I will forever maintain. The fans took and made it into something truly beautiful. And the world that it allowed people to occupy and design for themselves was the greatest gift that it gave. 
the books themselves are neither here nor there. But like that aspect of it really tapped into something that I think a lot of young people needed at a time that they needed it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and, as far- and that is why I feel comfortable saying that I am currently wearing a Hogwarts T-shirt. Oh, right you're now. fine. I have a Ravenclaw decal on my laptop because like the relationship that I have to the world and the doors that it opened for me and like the ways that it helped me identify parts of myself that I was previously uncomfortable with. Like, that's a really beautiful thing. And there's nothing wrong with the ways that people have taken elements of that world and reclaimed for themselves in really like fantastic manners, you know. Um, also somebody else bought it for me. So yeah, also somebody else bought it for me. So I don't feel bad about giving my money to her. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fine anyway. Um, but as far as Boggarts go, I really don't know of very many cryptids that are like electrically related in any way, shape or form. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with just the fact that so many cryptids are iterations of much, much, much older lore that then comes back around. And so electricity just really wasn't as much of a thing at the time that, you know, those cryptids would be needing it. I am pretty interested in the idea of cryptids that like would theoretically cause a blackout so that they could inhabit a larger area without fear of electricity, because I think that that is something interesting. Um, It doesn't sound like necessarily that's what this cryptid was doing or this creature was aiming for, but there are a lot of cryptids that primarily operate by sneaking around in the dark or who would benefit from having, you know, a rolling blackout across a large city, which would basically make it open season for them. So I think that would be a really interesting angle to take if I were rewriting this show or if I were giving it a second season. That's probably something I would play with. The candle boy. The candle snatcher. He's just snatching the power grid now. Though. Just snatching up candles, you know? I'm, I'm here in your power plant, snatching up your nuclear candles. It's Christmas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I where I think the uh, the most interesting mythology around electricity is is it like arises from the spiritualism movement because mm-hmm. uh, of course this was in a a time when people were just really figuring out and using electricity on a large scale for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's also a period in history where uh, people were suddenly obsessed with ghosts. And oh, yeah. these two things got very closely intertwined in the public imagination. Like there's this mysterious force called electricity that's out there mm-hmm. in the air everywhere that we can't see or feel and don't understand, but it's there. And if that's there, then ghosts can technically definitely be possible. Like if we can harness electricity to create light and power our homes, then surely we can figure out ghosts. Surely there's other forces out there that can create light and can make sounds and can speak to people and can cause some kind of impact on the material world. I'm just picturing the guys from BuzzFeed Unsolved, but in like the... The 1915s or 20s? It was the, like an old-timey, yeah. like, yeah. overcoat like and, like, holding like, lanterns up and, like, what ho? Yeah, what, like, what, what up, demons? It's late, us, you lads. <laughs> late Victorian era. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. I don't know when fucking years um, were. <laughs> but, yeah, that's a really, really excellent point. And it is really what I would hazard to say, like, 90% of folklore comes down to is people grasping for ways to allegoricize and contextualize the things that they don't understand. And especially when it 
is in terms of like sweeping movements in history or moments of incredible change or like rapid social development, people tend to be really scared of what they don't understand. And so it's, you know, when you're faced with something that is a very real presence in your life, that is something that you don't understand, it might help to give yourself something that you can grasp onto to make sense of it. And so if you're dealing with something like um, electricity doesn't make any sense to me, it comes from the sky and powers our homes. What is any of that? It makes more sense to me to think that a demon might be afoot, like because that's something you can wrap your head around as abstract as it is. If you were raised in a tradition that acknowledged evil forces that were unseen that preyed upon you from the time you were born until the time that you died, like then that's at least a touchstone for you. That makes more sense than saying there are invisible things in the air that move around very fast and that makes light somehow. Like, if that doesn't work for you, you're going to find some other way to make sense of it. And it's so fascinating because that's a cognitive dissonance that people have actively chosen for themselves a lot of the time throughout history. Like, not and also to- today. And also today, very much so. <laughs> but one of my favorite examples is that, like, in ancient Hellenistic polytheism, like in Greece... Um, The gods supposedly lived on the top of an extremely climbable hill and nobody checked. (laughs) Like (laughs) Mount Olympus is not insurmountable. It's right there. It's like a real place. They could have just looked up there. But that wasn't the point. The point was that people needed a way to explain to themselves and make sense of the world around them and present a palatable explanation for the life they were living and the things they were experiencing and the forces that scared them and like the magnitude of the opposition that they were facing. And they needed a way to contextualize that for themselves while also building a culture around it, you know? And so I think that any period in history where you have sweeping changes is going to introduce a whole new flood of fascination with the paranormal. And we're in one of those right now, I think. I really believe that like right now we are in a a supernatural renaissance of sorts. People are obsessed with cryptids and monsters and ghosts and ghost hunting and spiritualism and mysticism right now in a really, really cool way. And because we have access to the internet and because we have all of these movements bringing the globe so much closer together than it has ever been before, we have access to all of these stories and we have ways for people to share their own experiences and really, really connect and feel valid in those experiences in a way that I don't think they've had up until now. And, you know, with like podcasts, people can listen to stories like that and people can curate the experiences that they want to have on the internet. So you can go out and you can choose only to follow people who talk about stuff you want to listen to. And you can choose only to subscribe to podcasts where people talk about stuff that you think is interesting. And you can choose to only watch videos on YouTube that like, with the exception of the weird algorithm where YouTube will try to make you watch like racist cult brainwashing videos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, With the exception of that, you can choose to watch only videos that you want to watch. And so We're dealing with all of the really, really terrifying movements at play in our world right now by creating these spaces for ourselves to feel really seen in. And I think that that's like ultimately the human experience, you know, is looking for a way to connect with the things in the world that maybe kind of frighten and intrigue you and to make sense of them and to befriend them in a way that I think is really neat. Everyone wants to marry Mothman. Everyone wants to marry Mothman. Everybody. Everything is confusing, and sometimes you just need a big uh, mothman to, to cuddle you. 
It's sometimes, true. Sometimes you need a Sasquatch to give you a big, big hug. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot on our show too, but one of the things that I think is just super, super neat is especially in this sort of cryptid renaissance that we're going through is the really intense reclamation of monster archetypes by marginalized groups and people who have decided that like Mothman is their husband now because they too (laughs) feel kind of fringy and they feel like people are scared of them and don't understand them. And they're like, you know what? Fine. We are the monsters. That's okay. We love the monsters. The monsters are our friends. The monsters are misunderstood. The monsters maybe all this time have just been choosing to exist on the fringes of a society that doesn't want them. So I think that's really kind of beautiful. And I think that there's a lot of strength to be found in that. I talked about that in a McElroy fan group where someone was asking, like, what does Frankenstein mm-hmm. Yeah, Frankenstein team. Uh, like, come the monster mean to you? And mm-hmm. uh, I brought up, there's a, a really beautiful and iconic panel from God Loves, Man Kills, which is a famous X-Men run, mm-hmm. where um, Reverend Stryker, who, like, leads this alt-right religious group in the 80s, uh, is, like, persecuting the X-Men, and he points mm-hmm. at Nightcrawler, and he says, you dare call that thing human? And it's a really famous... Uh, panel Night where Striker is like boy. holding his Bible know, me too. Uh, and pointing at Nightcrawler and screaming, you dare call that thing human. And Nightcrawler just like his head is between his shoulders. Like he looks so sad. And like as someone who like has faced a lot of backlash from religion and mm-hmm. um, has had a lot of shit shouted at me uh, and like my humanity and my integrity questioned like that panel has always really struck a chord with me and Nightcrawler's always really struck a chord with me because in a lot of ways, Nightcrawler is the most human of the mm-hmm. X-Men. Uh, he's a beautiful, perfect boy. who's never done anything wrong ever. And he loves everyone. And, uh, you know, become the monster. You know, I think we relate to these creatures and these beasties so much if you're on the fringes mm-hmm. because so often our humanity has been called into question. And so often... Our integrity has been called into question and our motives has been called into question. So when we see those same people point at, you know, the fishman in Shape of Water and say like, oh, he's up to no good. He's evil. He's a beastie. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, you also say the same shit about me. I'm going to go with the fishman. Yeah, I trust that guy more than I trust fucking like vanilla white bread (laughs) FBI guy. Uh, Lindsay Ellis, the YouTuber, has a very fascinating video about like, the quote-unquote monster fucker uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. movement, uh, yeah. where women and queer people specifically uh, are suddenly being very vocal about their attraction to demi-humans, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is seen as deviant, even though, like, cishet men have been doing this since forever. Uh, right. I mean, like, look at the the Twi'leks in Star Wars. Oh my God. Cishet men want to fuck yeah. the Twi'leks. Like, they do. They do kinds... so bad. Why are they like that? Yes. So yes. Bad. And that's just that's seen as normal. But now that women are women and queers are into it, they're like, oh, why do all these women want to fuck monsters all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. And Lindsay Ellis has a, a fascinating breakdown of the shape of water specifically. And like Beauty what, and the Beast. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. And like where that came from culturally and why it's suddenly a thing, even though maybe it was kind of always a thing, but now we can just talk about it because of the internet. It has always been a thing. And it's funny. Shape of Water is a gorgeous movie. I actually, I saw it with Addison when it came out. Um, 
And it's probably not a movie that I would have gone and seen on my own, but I'm really glad that I did. It was it was gorgeous and it's exactly up her alley. And so I was really glad I got to see it with her. But I have to tell you that Fishman in Shape of Water is like the single most female gaze love interest I have ever seen in my life, like human or otherwise. It does not matter. It's like he's got the big soft eyes and he doesn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like so communicative and emotionally intelligent. And it's like literally if you just changed the visible appearance of this creature to be like a just human skin, like this would still be a very lovable creature. Like this is this is just an ideal archetype and it just happens to have fish skin. <laughs> like that's it. It was really, really fascinating. Like that movie was just did a lot of really beautiful storytelling. Um, but I totally agree. It's a great example of that idea that and the movie handled it in a way that was really, really wonderful because it was both implicit in the monster storyline and also explicit in like the handling of the other storylines in it, which is something that <laughs> I'm going to get dangerously close to calling out J.K. Rowling again, so stop me. But Don't stop me. Um, but it's such a terrible story writing decision to say, like, this thing is a metaphor for this very relevant storytelling topic. Oh, and then to, you're about to talk about AIDS. And then to not directly address that in your story. Like, to say this thing is a metaphor for homosexuality and then, like, not actually have that character be gay is... Stupid. Why would you do that? So what The Shape of Water does really beautifully is that it has this like monster character who is very clearly a metaphor for being misunderstood and on the fringes of society. But then it supports that by having the entire supporting cast go through similar struggles with their actual marginalized identities. And like that's what makes the metaphor effective is so that you have people who can see their own struggles reflected on screen and also give them a vehicle for explaining it to people who don't have that experience. And, like, that is what the monster metaphor is about. It's not about just, like, saying, oh, yeah, having AIDS is probably like being a monster. Like, that's really not helpful to anyone And then maybe don't put a monster in the story that specifically targets children. Yeah, it's real bad, Oh, so bad. It's so bad. It's real bad, isn't it? It's so bad. Yeah, and it's especially bad because there was nothing in the story to draw the parallels in an empathetic way. It was just like, oh, this is apparently a thing that I think is true, um, instead of, you know, actually having a moment to, like, convey a really beautiful storytelling moment. But and this is why import- it's important <sighs> that John Constantine is queer. Yeah, come yes. on. No one ever forget. John Constantine's a big queer, and he fucks monsters. <laughs> He's possibly the OG monster fucker. He might have funks, fucked Swamp Thing. Probably. Yeah. They probably did. I yeah, they were, best, they were best buds for a long time. Yeah. Also, poor Swamp Thing. He, he needs a friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, any, any, anything else we want to hit on? Babe, I know you've had one like pulled up. <laughs> do you still want to touch on it or by all means i've just been running my mouth like please don't let me go off on philosophical tangents the entire time i'm here to talk about monsters we uh, could probably lightning round it if you want evan uh i i i do like this list that you created ronnie it's very handy so, <laughs> yeah it was a great little study guide um yeah there's none of them no further ones that i think can uh be classified as cryptids Unless you squint real hard, because of course there's of course there's overlap between 
like demonology and what are interpreted as cryptids. Well, or... like episode six, where the thing is like possessing children, that's very similar to uh, the Irish folklore thing that like kidnaps your kid and replaces it. Oh, a changeling? Um, yeah, yeah, that's got a very big changing energy to it. When I saw that, I actually was immediately thinking like black eyed children. That It's probably oh, closer yeah. to black eyed Yeah, children. to like black eyed kids. Have they actually harmed anyone though? Do we have any reports of them harming people? Uh, well, if it is first with what is a black eyed child. <laughs> so oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, so black eyed kids are this phenomenon of uh, basically they appear as like creepy, pale, very eloquent children with black eyes, and basically they are asking to be let in somewhere or they're asking for you to come out somewhere and like always appear in these situations of like needing the assistance of an adult. Um, and people generally report like finding them in these situations and they're very like unnatural. Like you go to open the door in the middle of a storm and like there are children and they're like, we need to use your telephone. And you're like, maybe not because <laughs> otherwise really nope. bad things will happen. Um, so I I don't think there are any, like, stories of black-eyed children, specifically, like, injuring people. We don't have stories of, like, a black-eyed kid stabbed me. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> maybe we just don't have stories because there aren't survivors. Dun-dun-dun. Uh, I think we were all personally harmed by uh, how overplayed Who Let the Dogs Out <laughs> were was in, like, circa 1999 or some shit, and... Black-eyed peas, black-eyed children. I was wondering where that was going. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and end that. That that was the Baja man. That was not the black-eyed peas. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I thought I was like the hero pilot landing the plane. Black-eyed peas did The the river or the bay or whatever. Black-eyed peas did Tonight's Gonna Be a Good Night, and they did Where Uh, is the Love, mm -hmm. right? Which is a good song. They did the Boom Boom Pow. They Uh, did the... Ronnie over there is mm. a big Black Eyed Peas fan, apparently. I'm kind of a Black Eyed Peas fan. I got <laughs> Apple the App. I got Will I Am. You know I'm a Black Eyed Peas fan because the first one I mentioned is Apple the App. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, like, nobody God except damn. Black Eyed Peas fans has ever heard yeah. of. Oh. Yeah, there was this I, whole thing I read in a magazine one time about how Will I Am was like, when music is round, that's when it sells. Records sold. CDs sold. Tapes didn't sell. And it was just, we got to find, and now we have iPods and they're square and they don't, music doesn't sell. We need to get back to, to round. And I was like, will I am you, you like brain meme, like you are intergalactic brain up here. And I am way down at the bottom of that it's meme and I'm not geometry. with you. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, he's, he's definitely, uh, uh, like yoga pose floating in space, glowing purple level meme. But you know, he's right though. Cause now I have Spotify premium and that's a round icon and I use it all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> there we uh-huh. go. Oh wow. There we go. He was onto it. Oh wow. He knew. Okay. Oh boy. The only I'm, other cryptid I'm, that I, what are we even I'm talking sorry. about? <laughs> The only other cryptid that I think I want to mention is one that we had uh-huh. mentioned before, just kind of goofily. Um, and Andy, maybe you could take this away. You have better uh, knowledge of it. But uh, the creator of Constantine. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, has uh, has claimed to have seen Constantine on multiple occasions, not just like <laughs> a cosplayer or like his inspiration for Constantine, the good John Constantine. Yeah. Al- Alan Moore is a weird wizard man. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know much about Alan Moore? 
Um, not like the most. I, I have a, a general understanding of he, Alan Moore and his nefarious dark works. He looks like a cross between Rasputin and Theoden when Theoden is possessed by Saruman. Mm-hmm. Like if they had a baby, that baby was Alan Moore. And uh, he wrote Constantine and uh, some other famous comics. And then uh, around the 90s, he was like, fuck everything, fuck society, I'm going into the woods! Mm -hmm. And he now lives in the woods, and he gets his mail delivered by an assistant. He does not, like, take internet. Like, he only takes, like, phone calls and, like, handwritten Well, that's good, because otherwise he would have to hear all of the thoughts I have about how the killing joke ruined comics and comic movies forever, so. You would be very correct about that, by the way. Yeah, so Um, it's a good thing that he lives in the woods where he doesn't have to face my ire, but is hopefully atoning for his sins. Was it, uh, I think it was Movie Bob who just did a really great video on that uh, as well. Uh, It was either him or Patrick H. Williams. One of them did a really great video on The Killing Joke and how it fucked comics forever. Mm -hmm. But um, Alan Moore is a weird man who uh, swears up and down that Constantine is real and that he has met him on multiple occasions and other Constantine writers have sworn up and down that they've met the real John Constantine as well. Which I don't find hard to believe because we do know for a fact that Keanu Reeves walks among us. <laughs> as as like great as the, the Constantine movie is, because I do very much enjoy it, especially their portrayal of Gabriel. Um, I think Tilda Swinton. Yeah, Tilda Swinton does a great job. I do think Matt Ryan on the show is a better Constantine than Keanu Reeves was. Oh, I'm not talking about acting. <laughs> Keanu Reeves is an immortal being and this would explain a lot of things is all I'm saying go on (laughs) (laughs) are you not aware of this theory of this conspiracy theory on the internet that he's ageless and has appeared in many many paintings and things like that oh did you not know this do I get to be the person to tell you about immortal Keanu Reeves theory yes Oh, please, Alex, sure. do. Please inform Andy. I know about he, this, but I'm going like, to let you tell He was it. in Bill and Ted when he was like, what, like 15? Yeah, yeah. he looks the same. He Have you seen him? Same. He doesn't look exactly the I same. I love Bill and Ted so much. It's such a good movie. Bill um, and Ted Keanu Reeves <laughs> is very different than John Wick Keanu Reeves. Uh, nothing that a little bit of well-applied makeup would not accomplish. It's true. Okay, give me sure. one second. I have to drop some pictures in the Discord chat. Um, but oh I'm my about god, learned a thing. Oh my god, this is you're the about hap- to get schooled. This is the happiest I've maybe ever been. Um, I love this specific conspiracy theory, and the fact that I get to be the one to share this information is you have no idea how happy this makes me. Okay, 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 okay. So, here's just like a brief timeline oh, for you, yeah, right? Okay. Here's a brief timeline of some Keanu Reeves appearances throughout history. Okay, wait, these, okay. So these pictures mm-hmm. labeled 1994, 2008, and 2014, are those legit the years they are taken? I mean, I'm as pretty- As far as I know. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, like, yeah. we did not screen cap them. Because, damn, that one from 1530 is like, uh-huh. spot on Keanu. Yeah, isn't it? It's wild. There are several different paintings and historical figures that, like, resemble to an uncanny degree one Mr. Keanu Reeves. Huh. 
Is Keanu Reeves a cryptid? Oh, 100%. Except he's not because his existence has been confirmed. <laughs> that's yeah, but true. his immortality has not been confirmed yet. That's true, but that's not the definition of a cryptid. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, many, of, that's them, fair. many we... of them may or may not be immortal. <laughs> yeah, we do know that Keanu Reeves is real. I love this. This is wild. Yeah, and then yeah, just so... one more thing real quick... Uh, da, da, da. There's a specific picture I'm looking for. And give it one second. Ah, where is it? Here we go. Hey, Bramble. Hey, Kenton. Our cat has come to say hi. Oh, hello, Kenton. Oh, here we go. Here's the whole website. Keanuisimmortal.com. <laughs> there you go. Educate am I going yourself. to love this? Am I going to love this more than the Heath Ledger website we discovered? <laughs> what was that Heath Ledger website? Ronnie, drop that Heath Ledger website <laughs> oh, for, for our Will fans. <laughs> Counter Reeves is mortal. Here's the proof he doesn't age. <laughs> well, I'm convinced. And then wow, I love what? it says, being immortal, he lived through time with many identities. These are the confirmed ones. <laughs> okay, so we got Charlemagne. Uh-huh. We got Paul Monet. Um, which, yeah, I can see a resemblance there. Um, uh, just those. Okay. I was expecting more identities. Well, they're the only confirmed ones. It's pretty cool that they're confirmed, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Charlemagne specifically. Yeah. I'm so glad we time traveled mm-hmm. back to uh, 748 and and just asked Charlemagne, like, hey, is, Are uh, you Keanu? is, hey, is your name Keanu you, Reeves? You Keanu? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> this kind of can only be acquired in a long and wise life. <laughs> What an interesting website. It's very good. Um, it yeah, very ec- good. Uh, excellent uh, HTML applications here. It's really good. Yeah. Also, also, have you seen the theory that Jack Black is Paul Revere? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I love like historical doppelganger conspiracy theories, and this one is really good. So... It's literally just like this one image. It, it's not nearly as in-depth as the Keanu Reeves one, but I do need you to look at it. it's a really powerful image and it has a lot of unholy energy (laughs) you made andy do that shriek laughter that andy sometimes does anyway so that's my contribution to the podcast i hope it was thank you alex this has been perfect and beautiful Um, uh our takeaways here are that um Cryptids belong to queer people, and mm-hmm, yep. that um, John Constantine is both a queer and a cryptid <laughs> who exists in real life. Yeah. I, That's it? That's definitely that. the high points of everything we talked about. <laughs> Anything to add, Ronnie? No, that that <laughs> covers it in total. Um, And if you were going to make an X-Man queer, it shouldn't have been Iceman, it should have been Nightcrawler. It absolutely should have been. And Gambit! Gambit's straight! 
Gambit's not straight. No, I mean, like, not. I know he's, I know he's, straight. I know he's straight with air quotes, but we, we been new. Yeah. We, we know what's up. Come on now. Come on. God now. damn. The only anyway. straight X-Men is Cyclops. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Cy- Cyclops and Wolverine, fuck. I really I don't, don't know think about they that. Do. They I don't fuck. know about that. Yeah. I, I do. I've read fan fiction. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, all right. If you don't like the canon, make your own canon. That's uh. right. Um, is there a straight X-Men? <laughs> Deadpool in the movies for some reason. But anyway, I digress. I don't. I'll never forgive them for making Deadpool straight. <laughs> <sighs> I haven't actually seen the second one. I can't speak y- to he's this. still straight. Okay. Yep. Oh, bummer. I know. Those <laughs> cowards. <laughs> Those cowards. <laughs> So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us yeah. and discussing Our all X-Men these good, good cryptids. All these monster, thank monster you for, folks. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a good time. Um, I'm going to have one more one more final question, though, before, mm-hmm. we, before we say our goodbyes. Of course. If there was a cryptid that you wanted to get a spotlight in something, like a, a silly, dumb show like Constantine, mm-hmm. uh, is there a cryptid that you would be like, this one needs to get some attention? Oh man, a cryptid that I think needs more attention. Uh, or just like a favor that you want to see done in like live action. Yeah, actually, I really, really wish that we had more hide behind stuff in like the public eye. The hide behind is such a cool cryptid, and there is so much potential there for, I think, like film treatments or like the hide behind could make a really phenomenal low budget indie horror film that could be done really, really well. And I'm really surprised that I haven't seen more stuff with it. It's like such a perfectly weird and spooky monster that has such a fun, like strange lore surrounding it. And the origins of it are so cool. And like, I just think you could have a lot of fun with it. You do a lot of really interesting stuff with it. And I'm frankly shocked that it hasn't been in more material. There we go. Season two of Constantine. Fight and hide behinds. Fight and hide behinds. Yeah. I actually, I like, I wrote an entire bespoke monster of the week, like game mechanic. Like I hacked all of monster of the week just so you could use hide behinds. Cause I think hide behinds are really cool. We did an entire arc in our monster of the week, like campaign where we just did like a hide behind mystery. It was really fun. I, uh, I do that for our LARP. Like, uh, mm-hmm. we, we use a lot of cryptid inspiration, and I'm constantly like, all right. How do, we, hide behind. How, how are we altering these rules so that I can, like, shove in the cryptid that just, I'm currently obsessed mm-hmm. with? Yeah, Let me just right. take a straw and slurp up that idea. <laughs> take it with me. Hide behinds would be awesome in Lost yeah. Colonies. We yeah. could do they that. Be awesome. We should do that. There we go. Good idea. Thank you. We're stealing that now. It's there ours. you go. If you want more ideas, my hide behind module is pay what you want on drive through RPG.com. So you can have those oh, ideas excellent. for free. Bangerang. All right. All right. Well, th- thank you so much for joining us on our silly, silly show. Yeah. It's been a great time. Andy, do you have a show that we are doing next? Oh, fuck. I was supposed to decide. Um, you were supposed to think about that. Yeah, I was going to announce that at the end here. Because I had made a decision right about that right now. Um, uh, uh, um, someone, someone say, uh, odds or evens. Odds. All right, Ronnie, uh, we're doing, uh, the Black Donnellys because you said odds. 
Okay. Black Donnelly's <laughs> it is. I made a decision ahead of time and just this was all just an act. This was right. a this was a, a bit. I will edit I it prepared. so it made it seem like you were very decisive and direct. <laughs> Love it. You don't That's have where to the magic shame, happens. Ronnie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Put it all behind that editing wall. Just yes. just keep it in that secret quiet room that you have. Yep. So oh thank you so much, Alex. Uh, thank you so much uh, to the whole Cryptid Keeper knowledge base that you have brought to us. Uh, everyone should go check out uh, Cryptid Keeper. Um, I believe it's at what, what's your what's your handles? What's what? How do yeah. people follow so you? So on Twitter, we are at Crypt Keep Pod. C R Y P T K E P P O D. That's also our email address: is cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on the Lunar Light Studio Network website or you can find us on Facebook or <laughs> Patreon um, or, you know, wherever <laughs> podcasts are distributed. Very cool. Very excellent, cool. Excellent. Excellent. Yep. Uh, we are both Ending Pending and Crypto Keeper are a part of that Lunar Light Studio that Alex mentioned uh, with other shows like Storyboard, other shows like What You Call It, other shows like The Good Boys Girls. Check out all those shows on Lunar Light Studio dot com uh you can follow advertising we're good at it uh you can follow ending pending uh at pending pod on twitter at pending pod on facebook at ending pending on instagram and send us emails to ending pending at nope send us emails (laughs) to pending pod at gmail.com beautiful job Beautiful, beautiful. Edit that so that nobody knows that you got our email wrong, Ronnie. I will, I will. Or just make I'll another email address and pretend it was right, yeah. all intentional. Just keep keep porting everything back to one email. That's right. Um, and so if we had a bunch of cryptids and we were trying to keep them secret, is there anybody we, we would have to, like, you know, keep it under wraps from? Don't, don't tell, tell Pawn Shop Lou. Lou. Don't tell oh, him. Oh, we can't. Don't tell Pawn Shop Lou. He's a very bad man. He'll, uh, we don't yeah. know that. Don't slander Pawn Shop Lou. I don't like him. I don't trust him. You've never met Pawn Shop Lou. He must he, stay in ignorance, though. He, he, would not keep, he would not keep the cryptids. Wait a minute. He wouldn't keep them. Is Pawn Shop Lou a cryptid? Is he gay? Lunar Light Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.